All right. What's up, all you beautiful people out there? It's your boy Hobart coming at you on episode six of the Bartcast. Man, do we got a special one in store for you today. I have been wanting to do this one for a long time and uh, really pumped on today's topic. So just going to dive right into it. Um, Well, first, I'll just say that uh, it's been quite hot out here. It feels like summer's finally sinking its greasy fingers into all of us. Wow, that came out wrong. Um, (laughs) Summer's here, and uh, yeah, it's it's, going to be a good one. I have a, a real good feeling about it. Uh, my brother is moving in with me this weekend and, uh, we're going to have, we've just been like work putting in so much work on the backyard, getting it just churned out, diving into the Zen of landscaping and weeding, tearing down Ivy and just like really trying to make this home into its full potential. And, uh, I'm certainly, you know super stoked on uh on the on the the dream that we're attempting to bring about so uh yeah your boy is pumped my guest today is uh undoubtedly my favorite person in the world um he's my best friend he's my brother you know him under which are many different names, uh, Basebone Chone, Choney, Chone, The Chone, Tony, Antonio, any way you put, spell it. Uh, he's a, he's a unique character. And, um, today we're going to be talking about, uh, Space Jam. Yes, you heard correctly, folks. Here on the Bardcast, we're always seeking to bring you quality content of the highest caliber and seeing as uh, a lot of us have been tucked in for the past um what is it five weeks of uh, of watching this amazing espn documentary the last dance i think it's also up on netflix um which tells the story of the 90s bulls michael jordan era uh it just seemed appropriate, uh, that we would dive in to, uh, towards this topic. And, you know, when I asked my brother to come on the Bart cast, he was like, well, I want you to pick a topic that would, uh, really allow me to show and, uh, allow me to show, you know, what the chone is. And, you know, I, I think that there's nothing more representative of the chone than, the art of creative analyzing, uh, analyses. Uh, Tony is a master at giving you his own philosophical take, which may or may not, uh, be based on reality. Uh, it certainly is based on a reality, maybe not the reality, but, uh, but the Chone is very adept at, weaving his own, uh, mythos into, uh, you know, his 
telling of events or his connections that he makes. And I just find him so delightful. So much of our relationship is based on the sharing of, of these takes and, uh, you know, just putting our own spin on things and hearing how, how creative Tony gets in, uh, his telling of these stories, um, with such confidence. Uh, I, I felt like I had to bring it to all of you guys out there and, and give you a little taste of that. So, um, yeah, if you haven't seen the last dance, uh, and, or space jam, I highly recommend you pause this episode right now and go watch that documentary series. Um, I think I get into this at the end of the podcast, but I would recommend that you watch space jam in the middle of your documentary experience. So like right around, I think episode three or four, when, Michael Jordan, there's an episode where it talks about Michael Jordan's year off from the NBA when he went to go play baseball. That's where I would pause the documentary, watch Space Jam, then resume. Uh, And this podcast, certainly, you know, you're going to get a lot out of, a lot more out of if you've experienced those two cultural phenomenon, phenomena, uh, because we're, we're totally referencing it throughout this whole episode. But uh, but even if you haven't, if you don't have any desire, maybe you just get a kick out of a couple of schmucky armchair philosophers, you know, making pretty grandiose statements about uh, about one of the most influential figures uh, in American history and world history. Um, yeah, today we're going to be exploring the connections between uh, the documentary, the last dance and the making of space jam and the story itself, uh, contextualizing our take with the idea that space jam is actually the secret autobiography of Michael Jordan. So, um, again, I, you know, and I'm going to, we're going to reiterate this throughout the episode, but Few of our takes in this episode are rooted in any sort of objective truth or fact, if there even could be, even if you, if you could even claim to make the truth, uh, or make, if you could even seek to make the claim that there is an objective truth, I think that is worth its own podcast or podcast series. Uh, I certainly am in the camp of, uh, being a bit skeptical that there is such thing as objective truth especially in today's day and age where finding a set of facts we can all agree on has become more and more dubious. Um, In this episode, we are kind of using our creative paintbrushes to, you know, make a story that that we hope you find interesting. It sure has been fun for us to, to kind of weave this, you know, weave our own Michael Jordan mythology and use, you know, use these... Uh, ideas that are brought about in these two works um, to to kind of paint our own narrative. And uh, so hopefully you find it, you know, at the bare minimum, uh, listenable and, and hopefully entertaining. And uh, and uh, like like Tony says later, you know, totally open to uh, to hearing some comments. If you guys go into the the um, iPod, Apple to iPod uh, receptacle spot where you find your podcast. There's a place where you can comment on the Bartcast, or, um, if you're getting this through Podbean on, on my Podbean site, you can comment there or in the Google play store, wherever you find your podcasts. 
there's an opportunity to interact there and we'll we'll definitely be uh taking into consideration those comments and i uh i'm not quite to the point yet where i have a great place to interact with people um who like who want to you know interact with this podcast we've there's been talk that's maybe somewhere down the line we'll we'll start doing some sort of like call in feature or or where we can have a um a phone line where people can call um and leave messages and we can play them on air and and respond to them i I certainly would like to integrate that at some point um one other place you can feel free to uh if you want to email me with questions or things that you'd like me to address in episodes um or episode ideas uh the bartcast mailbox at gmail.com is the official email for this podcast so that's that's t-h-e as in the bartcast mailbox at gmail.com feel free to shoot me an email there um but yeah we're gonna go ahead and get into it um once again uh this this podcast is really going to be about the bulls and michael jordan and a couple schmucky armchair philosophers take on the whole situation so without further ado uh let me introduce to you my brother tony owen aka the chone on this episode six of the bartcast Right, Hobart here with my brother Chone. What's up, dude? How's it going, man? Pretty good, you know. Just uh, kicking back here on this lovely Wednesday, uh, and I'm really glad that you, we finally got you on the Bartcast. Oh well, it's an absolute honor, you know, <laughs> to be on such a prestigious podcast with such a you know budding reputation. Um, you know, it's only been going here for, for just a little while now, but you know, there's a lot of hype around about the Bartcast and, uh, so it <laughs> feels good to finally get on here, you know? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, better than anyone, I've been talking about doing this for years and, uh, certainly, you know, you're, you're probably the person I, I bounce more of my harebrained ideas off of than mm-hmm. anybody else. So um it's only fitting that i'd finally get around to getting the chone on and i can think of no better or more apropos topic than uh and what we're going to talk about today but uh yeah and i you know i i guess that we're probably going to do some reminiscing about our you know with with the topic and everything about our early days and you know like i mentioned the other day um we uh yeah, you, and you remembered as well. We used to make our little radio shows on our our cassette boombox, and That's we right. would record and we dub in music, and then we'd talk about it and we do characters and all that. So you know that that was like the the starting 
of the Bart cast way back then when we were, <laughs> you know, what, eight and ten or whatever. Right. Yeah, those were good times recording off the radio and mixing, you know, just using our little easy cassette tape recorder or whatever. And who would know that, you know, that the technology would get to a place today where we can do something a little similar in our room. And how's your day going? Would, would you take me through what the Chown breakfast was like on this lovely Wednesday? Well, there wasn't much breakfast today. Um but but um, I'm you know I'm super stoked that they opened up um, Sweet Adeline Bakery. Shout out Ooh. shout out to the local bakery that's it's down the street from my house. They just opened their doors and it's it's kind of like one of those uh, two people in at a time kind of situations. And I went in and today I treated myself. I got a London Fog. I don't know if you've ever had one of those. Ooh, it's um, a London Fog. It's it's sort of like um, it's like Earl Grey tea with like frothy like latte milk or whatever and then they put like a tiny bit of vanilla Mm. and it kind of tastes like um you know when you like you eat your cereal and there's the the milk at the end i always thought that earl gray kind of has notes of like like i think they used earl gray extract in fruit loops Hmm. like when you when you drink the milk from fruit loops that's kind of what it tastes like so it's pretty delicious and it gives you that little black tea buzz you know that that i really like that sounds pretty darn delightful and uh certainly glad to hear that sweet adeline is a uh, back open for business they got the bomb cookies and the good iced tea yeah i got one of those those whopper uh whopper oatmeal raisins today and okay. it, it was it was a good bake today nice nice well why don't we just jump right into it because i know uh you know, we gotta we gotta make sure that you can get back to your music lessons in time. So um, today, guys, we're talking about Space Jam, a movie that is, I think, in both of our opinions, uh, a generational masterpiece. I was just speaking with my buddy, shout out Jacob Lacali, uh, on the phone about it, and he was telling me that. He hasn't seen it in uh, since it came out, but that uh, he was talking to some people from other generations who didn't quite get it, and that I think this was really a movie that was like made for '90s kids, and so you know uh, potentially there are people that that may kind of miss the point, or if you didn't see it when you were little, it may not have. I almost call it Goonies syndrome because I grew up, I just missed the boat on Goonies. And by the time I got around to seeing it, I think I was already in my 20s and it didn't quite have that nostalgia factor that uh, I was kind of like, is this the, everyone's, you know, really kind of raving about it. And it, it didn't quite hit me in the same emotional way. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering maybe, you know, Space Jam might have that similar effect on people. But I know for me and Tony, this was like a very important film during our childhood. Yeah, I would say so, and and also, you know, um, every t- every time you get to a new era, you think back and you think, you know, they just don't make them like they used to, um, and it's just true. There's these certain works of art that just really encapsulate naturally, um, you know, the time period and and more the the feeling, mm. you know, that you are getting from um, from that time period. So. Space Jam is one of those movies where when you watch it, 
you start to feel like you're in the 90s again, you know, um, and it just brings me right back, you know, to to that era. And and um, and so, you know, what we're going to discuss today is sort of, uh, you know, I, I always love to interpret, um, you know, art and films and music and and sometimes I like to interpret it with uh, with very little like actual knowledge <laughs> about the subject, and just kind of let my imagination run wild. Um, and I'm hardly you know hardly an expert on films or 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 what who the cast is, what the name of the director is, um, or even the facts. So we're not here for facts, but we're here to just kind of give our our you know brotherly take on the the this movie and our own uh you know analysis of mj and you know what could have been happening around those times we just watched the last dance so you know we're kind of informed about what he was going through during that time yeah and i'll say that uh you know a lot of the i think a lot of the inspiration to do this an episode like this came from uh, you know, back in, you know, five, six, maybe even more, maybe it was more like seven or eight years ago. I think it was, I think it was more like, uh, probably like four or five. Okay. But, but you were in school and you were writing, I think you asked me to help you with some editing with this essay that you were writing, um, that was basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to try to sum it up because this is what I remember is that you were writing, you wrote an essay on Space Jam making a claim that it was uh that Space Jam was in fact a symbolic uh autobiography that Michael Jordan had put out um and speaking to like you know your own uh what you had just described as your your own like kind of creative like analysis as a creative art um, you were making this claim, you know, and you had some real good points. And so, you know, we've been watching this last dance. It just finished, uh, this last Sunday. We're now recording on the Wednesday following, uh, the last episode. And I thought it'd be a great idea. It's very timely, you know, as everybody's talking about Jordan again, and we're, as we've been going through and watching the story, um, just to revisit that take and, uh, spend this time kind of, you know, making these points and, and connecting it to what we just watched in this long 10-point documentary. For those of you that don't know what we're talking about, uh, there's an amazing documentary out on ESPN called The Last Dance. It's a 10-part series on the story of the 90s Bulls of the Michael Jordan era. And it's just full of great cultural remembrances. And uh, I know for people like myself who was a child during this era, just a great revisiting of, of what it felt like uh, to, to witness, you know, and, and just how big the bulls were uh, for us all in the 90s. Yeah, and also how, you know, I think one of the really interesting things about watching this documentary um, and something that's really um, kind of, you know, is is loud to me today is that back then, you know, that was right before, you know, um, social me- the social media boom a few years before that. Um, so you, you weren't 
inside of the lives of the celebrities right. like you are today. Um, and so you kind of had to interpret these figures in your with your own imagination. So you would only get a, a little bit of media from them, whether it was a poster, them dunking, whether it was, uh, you know, a book that you had with some factoids about them or whatever. You weren't getting the full play by play picture of every little thing, every little Instagram post. And so, um, you know, so we all created our own Michael Jordan, our own Bulls, and you you did get little bits of of press, but um, to me, um, you know, it was about five years ago when I wrote that that essay, and I never actually finished it. It was for a class that I took actually after college when I was just trying to go back and kind of like rehone some of the skills maybe I missed while I was trying to make it through the gauntlet of, of graduation, work on my writing skills a little bit. And that seemed like a, a, a fun take. Um, but you were, really weren't inside of Michael Jordan's life. And um, and so it was more... So a movie like Space Jam, to me, is sort of this way... Michael Jordan has this thing that he needs to communicate to the masses. And, uh, and you know, he didn't have a, a social media where he could just post the way he was feeling on a whim. So, you know, there was this drive to create this art as he was, we'll, we'll get into the more specifics about it, but he was going through some PR kind of nightmares. Mm-hmm. It was around the time when, uh, when he went to baseball and, um, you know, and we'll get in and into more details in a yeah. bit, but, um, but you know, that's why there's, there's this sense in my mind that, that there's this communication of meaning, this almost opening the doors to this superstar and letting you kind of see inside in this fun, family-friendly way, you know, let's let the Looney Tunes explain it. Right, you know? right. Yeah, and just, you know, I just want, I think before we dive into the analysis, um, for those of you that haven't seen Space Jam and want to keep listening to this podcast, spoiler alert, I'm just going to give you a brief synopsis so you know what we're talking about. But essentially, Space Jam uh, is a fun family story that tells the tale. It opens up with uh, Michael Jordan. Uh, you know, he's playing in the base in the the minor league baseball, and there's these aliens on this place called Moron Mountain, and they're looking for their latest attraction and because their revenues are failing and people aren't really digging their attractions. And so this this boss uh, of the park, who's voiced amazingly by Danny DeVito, he sends his little minions to Earth uh, to capture the Looney Tunes because they see the Looney Tunes on, on TV and they want the Looney Tunes as their next attraction. So the little aliens come and they threaten uh, the Looney Tunes with slavery and the Looney Tunes in classic shticky fashion come up with some bylaw that allows for them to essentially uh, compete for their freedom, play for their freedom. And because the aliens are small, they choose basketball. Well, the aliens go and steal the talent from all the NBA players in the league or from, from five of them. Who are the, who are the, we got Charles Barkley, Muggsy Bogues. Um, Who was it? (laughs) David Robinson. Was that? No, no. No, Who who are the other guys? This is, uh, who was the big center? Um, let me look it up and, and apologies. Um, the, uh, just one second. 
We're having our media guy look it up. Could you look that up, Dave? He's pulling it up on his laptop. I love that it just autocorrects Space Jam, players who lost their talent. Oh, good. So we got Charles Barkley, Sean Bradley, Muggsy Bogues, and Patrick Ewing. Patrick Ewing, that's what I was thinking of. And Larry Johnson. Um, So essentially these little creatures, you know, having space abilities, they steal these players' talent. Suddenly the players are awful. There's a great scene of Charles Barkley going to catch a pass and it just bounces right off his head. And uh, and then it these creatures, the little aliens, when they when they steal the powers, they put them in a basketball. And when they touch the basketball, each one of them absorbs the powers of the NBA players, and they transform into these giant beasts, the monsters. And so they show up to to scrimmage against the Looney Tunes, and the Looney Tunes are like they thought the Looney Tunes they thought they were going to have an advantage because they were so small, but suddenly they're these big monsters with all this talent and they're like, Oh no, like what are we going to do? And so what they decide to do is to kidnap Michael Jordan, uh, via a golf cup, a golf hole. And they pull him down yeah, the they golf suck hole him down. while yeah. he's playing golf with Larry bird and, and Bill Murray. Bill Murray. Yeah. And they ask him, they plead with him to be their champion. And Michael Jordan agrees. And the rest of the movie is this game between the Monstars and the Michael Jordan and the Looney Tunes. And it's cameo just, Bill Murray. Cameo Bill the day. Murray. It's just an all around creative, amazing family story that really kind of summarizes the vibe of 90s, you know, movie making. And so. Um, yeah, it's like it's not one of those movies that you could plan. You don't plan to make a Space Jam. Like it seems like like I I don't know for certain, but but how like this doesn't seem like the kind of movie that the director had pre-written. Right. You know, he might have had some sketches, but it really seemed like there was a lot of Michael Jordanisms in it. So maybe there was it was a conversational kind of production process. This is all just me speculating, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and and I think that one thing I want to tell of all, all of our listeners right now off the bat, this episode isn't really about me and Tony being factually, factually, <laughs> yeah. like, Gotta literal. We're going to be spinning our own philosophy based on our observations and our own, like, what this movie meant to us. So you can go Google and fact check and we'll probably get a lot of it wrong. But part of this creative art is us spinning our own tale about Space Jam and its potential autobiographical connections. And some of them might be true and some of them may be way off. But I think part of the fun and the art, you know, that me and Tony like to do is sit around and kind of weave these, you know, it's almost like, does it really matter if it was factually, if, if it's a good story, hopefully you'll enjoy it. So that's really what we're going to be setting out to do here. And, uh, and, and also, you know, to all, um, you know, Hobart nation out there, all the, the fans, the beloved fans, <laughs> uh, you know, post some comments, you know, if there's, if there's a point you disagree with, if there's a fact that you disagree with, if we mess up someone's name, you know, we love the interaction. I would love to read them on Hobie's site and everything. And I know he he appreciates all that. So Yeah, totally. There you can comment on I think we have a a pod bean that allows for it. Or even, you know, the best way I think would be to comment uh in the app in the Apple podcast store or Google wherever you get your podcasts, you can leave comments on the individual 
episode. So if you have your own take or you have a, a bone to pick with one of ours, by all means, we'd love to hear it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what you were saying, Tony, about uh, seeing this movie as almost, you know, I like the way that I like to think about Space Jam is that it was that Michael Jordan went to the filmmakers and was like, I need to tell this story because I'm ready to come back to the NBA. You know, I've been playing for two years as a baseball player. It's not really quite working out in the way that I thought it was. I'm hungering to be number one in the world again, basketball, God. And I want to have this symbolic explanation to my fans of what my process was so that I can return back to the league to, to feelings of love, acceptance, and acclaim. You know, yeah, yeah. He didn't have social media. He didn't have an Instagram that he could go on and tell his story, you know, to, to tell a story for Michael Jordan meant calling a press conference or giving an exclusive and giving all this trust into a journalist, you know, not to spin it in the way that the journalist wanted to. Right. And so I think for Michael Jordan making, you know, a film that was symbolically representative of, of his process. Almost like a metaphor, loose metaphor. Yeah. And sometimes in metaphors, um, especially with a figure like that, where, where the camera's always on, it can it can actually be more effective at at portraying human meaning if you show it with symbolism as a, um, opposed to telling it through like a microphone and a camera right you know like he was used to you know the press following him around but i you know i want to sort of talk a little bit about michael jordan what we just watched in this documentary what was going on in that time we're not going to sum up the whole 98 or you know the whole 90s bowls watch the doc yeah you know but at that time and i'll probably get the dates wrong and everything what it was it must have been 95 what was his baseball year it must have been around 95 i think it was 90 because because he had what 96 97 98 were the i think it was 90 through 94 95 were and he came back at the end of 95 for the end of the season with the bulls okay well basically um you know, I didn't know this when I wrote this essay and I, I found it out in my in my research. Um, I didn't know that his father had passed away. And that was, a, um, you know, that was that I then I started to draw some some of my own conclusions and doing some of my own interpretations about, you know, um, what what spawned that whole why does an all star he's at the top of the world. He's you know he's been winning three titles most competitive guy why does he go play baseball and some people you know the obvious thing is you know his his father died and this is this is what he explains as well he didn't just die he was murdered he was murdered and his father always wanted him to become a baseball player so he he quits basketball and goes pulls this drastic move the fans are heartbroken. Right. They all, everybody wants him to play basketball. You know, it's like Muhammad Ali, like, you know, deciding that he's going to be a ping pong champ or <laughs> something. You know, it's like, no one's going to like that. They're going to want him to get out and fight. So, so he goes to baseball. And w one thing that happens in the media um, is that because there's a lot of hate towards Mike, for making that decision for taking the people's Michael Jordan away from them. Cause he's, he had reached for those of you who aren't nineties kids, he'd reached this Mosiah, 
Jesus-like. I like that Messiah. That's like a Messiah mosaic. Messiah. <laughs> Messiah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, he'd reach this... this um, he was a, the prophet, you know, of, of, of his time. So he'd reached that status and... Um, and so, what was I saying again? I totally forgot. You were just saying that he had reached this level, uh, this level of superstardom as a basketball player. But then to take it all away, there was some feelings oh, of, yes. of resentment. And... The the public backlash. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Michael Jordan's um, like insane competitive drive got him into um, gambling. And he always gambled throughout his career. And the thing was, you know, people can argue about the problems of gambling. But for him, he always had enough money. Hmm. How much of a problem is it if you lose, you know, you know, 10 bucks out of the million or whatever? 10 grand. <laughs> what, whatever, you know. So so there's a lot of speculation about um, that his gambling debts or that his gambling um, was the reason that his, his father got murdered. So that was floating around the media. There's this huge PR scandal of people saying that he had to take a break from the NBA, even that the NBA put him, told him to take a break um, to hide this big cover-up. Mm. So, so that was happening. So he's in need of this PR um, revitalization and here, this work of art comes. Um, I, I don't know the director's name, but you got to look at him. He's yeah. got wild white hair. But yeah. well, I just want to yeah. pause right there and also say that at the same time, in addition to, you know, all the questions about gambling and, you know, there's a lot of people that were just like Michael Jordan playing basketball. I mean, baseball. baseball? Yeah. Like, right. Like what? You know, like that was kind of my reaction that I remember of just thinking it was really silly. Like, dude, you're the best basketball player in the world. Like, what are you doing on the baseball pitch? And, and even, you know, seeing that, you know, Michael Jordan went and played for this team in Birmingham and they instantly had more media coverage than like, than some major league. Teams, yeah. People were just know? coming out to, they, they couldn't put him in the, the lower league because the lower league didn't have the right press right. capability. He got to so, play up in a higher league because they needed to have appropriate press facilities to cover it. And so I think that there were a lot of people that just kind of thought like, you know, just to, to quote, you know, LeVar Ball, stay in your lane. Yeah, you that's know? what people were saying. <laughs> I, I, You know, this makes me think about... Um, you know, one of my driving forces in my essay, something that I was, one of my claims was that I believed, and this is pure Tony speculation. I think that, that, um, Mike was going through somewhat of an existential crisis Hmm. at that point. And this is just my theory. Um, I was just looking at, okay, let's say that you are one of the most driven goal-driven competitors of all time. We can all agree that that's what Michael Jordan is. He has this drive and no one can, you know, no one quite knows where that drive comes from, but he wanted to win and be the champ and be the best more than anyone. 
and he's striving and he's making the steps and he's putting his head down and he's doing the insane amount of work to become the champ of the world. And so he goes through it all and he wins three championships. Right. He, he reaches the peak. He gains the stardom and now he's facing um, the loneliness of what it means to be on top. a superstar. Yeah. So he is... He can't go out in public anywhere. He's he's everybody wants a piece of him, you know. Everybody, no one treats him like a normal person. He's being hounded. Yeah, they talk about this in the documentary, and he really lays out a story in the Last Dance of like just how you know leaving basketball was also part of his him getting so exhausted with being the face of the league and being yeah. this, this, this cultural larger, ambassador. Yeah. He's, it, like, it's more than, you know, he was more than basketball. He was this symbol. Right. And, uh, and you know, that loneliness was starting to creep in. And when you watch the footage, this was really interesting to me because as nineties kids, we didn't get to see this. We mostly saw the image of Jordan from more of like a marketing standpoint where mm-hmm. people were trying to portray him as larger than life and not show as many of his human, you know, flaws and uh, and so this documentary, you could see, you know, the first championship. He's this young guy. It's it's the most amazing thing. Second championship, still excited. Yeah. Third championship comes, and you're seeing in this guy's eyes, and you're watching this guy who's just like, he won another one, and it's sort of like, what's next? He's like, he's go. You could tell he's going through this turmoil, um, and I think that it's pretty common with people who want to achieve um, greatness it's like you reach the hill and you're like well where's the next hill to climb i already did it right i need to find a way to challenge myself so that i can be great i think that's part of the drive for him to go play baseball is that he's looking guys like that they're looking for the next place to to show look i'm so good it doesn't matter what sport well some might argue that it is that like perpetual you know, uh, lack of satisfaction that, that is a huge driving factor for these people that do achieve greatness. And a lot of them do talk about, it's not, once you get there, it's not like that satisfaction or lack thereof goes away. And so they're like, all right, now what? And I think for Jordan, you know, both just from the understanding growing up, but also from this documentary, you get to see that like, not only is he still finding a lack of satisfaction, but he's also like suddenly having to deal with what, what any large public face is, which is that you have people that now starting to write, you know, trying to make their career off bringing you down. Yeah. Off of writing hit pieces, off of writing books, giving their takes just as we're giving our take. And oh, and let's talk about the whole be like Mike. Right. So, so there so now there's all this pressure that not only is he a basketball player, a champion, but he's a role model. And I know as a teacher, um, I teach preschool music, I teach lessons, I work with children all the time and even just in that, I'm dealing with parents. You know, no one cares more than parents about their kids. And uh, and just being a role model and the pressures that come from that, you know, I'm, I'm not a perfect person. I have things that, you know, maybe I wouldn't show, you know, a parent that I'm a part of or that, you know, parts of myself. 
you know, but I put on my, my best man suit and I go and I try to be a really good role model for these kids. But I just know what that pressure's like right. to be, you know, you feel like you have to be squeaky clean, you know, to, to be a role model. And, and here's this guy kind of thrust into this role with the huge be like Mike, be like Mike. Oh, everyone should be like Mike. And here's a man with anger issues, intense, maybe, you know, uh, like, is that com- competitive nature? Is that even healthy? Like, yeah. do you really want to be like Mike? Is it a character you know? feature or a character flaw? You know? Right. What is this greatness? What drives someone to be, quote unquote, great? And does it take that kind of sort of toxic competitive nature to achieve greatness? And is that great? These are all the questions you know, and obviously it doesn't have to take away from the fact that, you know, Michael Jordan's still one of my heroes, you know, just seeing somebody go through all this right. and, and try his best. And there's no manual, you know, for how to do that. You totally. Know? So I, all my compassion goes to guys like Mike, even though sometimes they, you know, they turn into tyrants. You know, I just always, I always just, you know, have to have compassion for a guy like that. Yeah. And, you know, Call me callous, call me, you know, whatever you want to. But, you know, my one of my big takeaways, and I get that, like, this was a Michael Jordan documentary that was put on by Mike. But at the end of the day, he delivered. It'd be a different story if he wasn't winning six rings. But for me, I'm willing to give him a pass on some of these things that he's criticized for because he won. And totally. he, not only did he win, but he won six times in a row when he was in the league. Yeah, you can say that 95 when he came back, they didn't win, but that was basically half a season. I think that uh, it's really easy to be play armchair quarterback and sit back and then try to analyze after the fact the you know what he was like and, and the difficulties that those around him had to deal with, but... I don't think any of us put in his position with that amount of raw talent and that amount of success uh, would do half as well as he did. At, at, I mean, one of the things about Jordan was he was not only this transcendental player, but he was also like incredibly charismatic and incredibly. And he had a, and he had a really gentle side. I yeah. mean, you see that you see that in Space Jam, right? And you see that just in interviews that there there is this soft kind of introspective person you know as well and that's that's one of the interesting things i think about human psychology is how you can sort of have these two polar personality types that balance each other because i don't think that michael jordan could have been the success that he was if he didn't have that softer side that could come back you know if he was just the tyrant just the workaholic you know uh you, you have to have that other side in my view to be you know as successful as he was but you know the other thing that we were talking about the other night when we were discussing it is um is you know now today and after that be like mike everybody tries to emulate mike especially basketball players and and we were talking the other night how like almost culturally we know better now though you know we've got to watch mike and you see these guys trying to in the NBA and others who are trying to be Michael Jordan. They're trying to emulate what the champ did, and they're becoming these tyrants and these these people who are kind of self-centered in their own legacy. You know, sort of like 
these things, mistakes that Michael Jordan innocently made before anyone knew better. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, there's that part. Learning the lessons of the past. Yeah, we've learned lessons collectively, and and now you know one of the beautiful things. I mean, I'm a Bay Area guy, so I'm biased, but you watch the Dubs, you watch the Warriors, and and you watch Steve Kerr coach them, who was on the squad, who who witnessed Michael Jordan and what that individual talent is about. But um, but Steve Kerr's a positional player who knows that that it's the combination of many talents that create a successful franchise and he's sort of proved that 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 model of you know you get enough guys who all play a role you share the load and you know you may you play smart basketball and he's proven that success model and he's beaten jordan emulators who are sort of like one man shows who are trying to carry the team on their back you run them out and they get tired and they start missing shots in the fourth quarter and you know well, and, and, you know, just to give credit where credit's due that, you know, I think a Steph Curry has seen, uh, has kind of picked, you know, how could he not be influenced by, by MJ as well. But, but, uh, but Steph has, has kind of chosen to be a more collaborative leader in that, you know, he'll put up these crazy numbers, but then he'll go and lead in assists or, you know, he's still a point guard. Totally. And, but that's and just yeah, to, yeah, yeah. just to piggyback on the Steve Kerr thing, you know, I think one of the big takeaways that I got out of the Last Dance was just how much Phil Jackson's kind of Zen attitude in, in constructing a culture, internal team culture in the Bulls, how much Kerr brought that same understanding and, and even enhanced it in putting together this Warriors team, and you can really tell uh, both intrinsically, but also just hearing the interviews from these players like the dubs so much of their success is due to like they were a family off and on the court you know right and you could tell that those guys really got each other's back and there's a lot of love there and that love translates into this cohesive team play that was the solution to the two-man superstar duo you know configuration that was kind of what jordan was dominating so you know yeah, yeah. And I mean, and also, you know, the fact that Steph Curry, who's, you know, the biggest star on the Warriors, um, isn't your all-star body type, you know, conventional all-star body type. He's too small. So right there, it sets him up even to be a, a role play all-star. Like right. he can't, you know, he can't be the one who's just dominating people physically. Jordan started out, you know, he was six six. He started out skinnier. You watch that progression through the dock, you know, as he was getting pushed around by the bad boy Pistons. Um, you know, he came back and he and he started putting on uh, putting on weight because he they were really you know he was ending up getting thrown to the floor by these big guys, and the '90s rules were a little looser, right? You know, so he was getting he was getting knocked around and he put on some weight. But Steph, you know, how what's he six three? He must be 6'3", something around yeah, there. So. He's he's short in NBA standards, so he's going to have to rely on a systematic uh, team that utilizes, you know, a more diverse, right. you know, role-playing talent, you know, pool. Right. So all that being said, uh, you know, I think to get back to this 
point that we were at in the in the Space Jam talk. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. So I, I had a point that I was thinking of okay. to loop it back. Yeah, bring it back. Because we're still on this arc. We're kind of telling the story of Michael Jordan and kind of what leads right up to Space Jam mm-hmm. in our eyes. Yes. <laughs> uh, Got to make that clear. Um, and my take was the, this existential crisis that he was going through. And I think that in life, we all have to face death in some way or another. And it's not just death like the end of our life. Sure, that's the big one. But I'm talking about the death of cycles, the death of seasons. When you you know, you know, put a project in motion and, uh, and it comes to fruition and it, it, it blooms. And then at some point, you have to let go. Um, uh, you have to let go of that project and watch something that you build and that's beloved and cherished um, fade away. And I, so I think that at that time, Jordan, after three championships, already on the fringes, you know, of letting, um, of being a winner and now having to face, you know, what that means to get to the top of the mountain. Then his dad dies. So he's in this ripe, opened up emotional state for these existential kind of, um, kind of epiphanies to, to come in. Sorry, my brother left the room. There was a little bit of noise in the background, so I'm getting a little off track. Um, but yeah, so he was having, you know, he was having to face, mortality and not just mortality of himself of his father of his family but i think just realizing the mortality of of this cycle that he was in and there needed to be a change and that's where he made the clean break as visionaries do Hmm. they go and they need to go away and they need a change and that's what they needed so he goes and he plays baseball now he gets refreshed. He's got a new goal, where a new sport, yeah, and he's able to refocus his energy in a way that isn't tainted by all the you know residual stuff from his his lifestyle. Yeah, and and, and one thing I think that's I've certainly witnessed in in uh, those types of people. I think you have it in U tones. Our buddy Lesh has it in him, but people that have like. Uh, really put in the 10,000 hours of, of like mastering a, a trade or a skill you with your music, you see these people time and again, um, diving into new projects, uh, because there's something about those early stages of having to build basic competency as a, it's, there's something like there's a Zen to it, or there's something about it that's very therapeutic and yes. I think that with like a palate cleanser, too. right? Yeah. Like yeah. the ginger at a sushi restaurant, right? In between your different roles. There's like, a lot of baggage that can build up when you're, when you're creative and you're down, you know, several years down the road on a project, mm-hmm. there's a lot of baggage that can build up. And so sometimes you need a break and I can speak from experience, you know, as, as a musician, I was kind of, you know, I started getting on the stage pretty young in life and, um, and I started taking every gig I could get and I was playing out and I reached this certain level, you know, obviously I can't compare myself to Jordan's and his success, but I reached my little local level of doing my thing and getting into this prof- professional in quotes, you know, th- there's not much good money in music, <laughs> you know, but I was playing out 
you know, and I reached this point where I was like, I wasn't really healthy in the lifestyle. And I took a huge four year break from playing gigs because I just needed to develop other sides of myself. I was in this rut that I had built from sort of diving into something and I needed to kind of pull back, reassess the really important things. But um, this is the point that I'll make sort of in parallel to why I kind of interpret Jordan this way is that, look, there's one thing that I'm going to do and that's going to play music and play guitar. Mm-hmm. And if I take go and take that break, <laughs> there's... I'm going to be coming back. Right, you know what right. I mean? Like that, there's no question. That's what I live for. Yeah. And, you know, you pull Jordan away from basketball. All you got to say is you can't play anymore. You can't keep up. Right. You, you throw a couple of jabs back in and you feed that competitive nature. And you're going to get that guy right back into the league to win three more championships. Well, you, know? you, you see that too with, you know, uh, you know, in, in current events, you know, uh, Mike Tyson coming back out of retirement for, you know, he said that he wants to box. Is know? he, is he doing that? I wasn't sure whether that was just a, um, like a little fun, like video he's I, making. Or so what I've heard, has he made an official thing that he's going to, what, what I've, I've, I've heard him say, cause I heard him on Joe Rogan like months ago and he was like, or last year, and he was just talking about how he doesn't even like to box anymore, how the the ego is gotten out of, you know, that for him, any competition at all awakens this demon inside of him, this ego demon. And Jordan said, you know, right. lately I'm, said I'm, that he, he won't play pickup anymore. Right, right. Just so, wanted to put that in. Yeah, yeah. So just to, this, you know, just strengthens the parallel. But, um, you know, Tyson has announced that he's, interested in in having a fight for charity and i think it was on rogan like last week he rogan was saying that tyson and i haven't seen the original tweet but apparently tweeted something out like the ego's back you know like he's kind of given back into that demon a little bit and you see these videos of him training and he looks like a beast just terrifying and so you know i think when you're at that super high level you know sometimes you go into these dorm periods of dormancy, but you get that taste. And uh, with Jordan, who knows even, you know, one of the things that I, one of my takeaways from The Last Dance was seeing how Jordan removing himself, whether consciously or unconsciously, allowed the rest of his teammates to strengthen their bonds and to start to play more team ball without him. So that when he did return, there was all these like connections forged so it wasn't all on his shoulders so that he could come back in and still be the star. But hey, all these other guys have had a season and a half to really uh, strengthen their individual games and to work out some of these team things uh, that having a Jordan on the team, there just wasn't as much space to execute. Right. I think that's a good call. And also, you know, just knowing from my own, this is my own experience. I uh, One of the reasons why I took my break from playing music for four years or whatever, um, at least out, I always played, but you know, it was, I wasn't performing was because of what, what being in show business from a young age, um, did to my little ego, Mm. you know, it's harder than you think to take compliments. When you take a lot of compliments, people say, you're going to be this, you're going to be that you're great. You're great. Or, you know, whatever it is, um, people in life, that's what they actually strive for. They want those strokes. 
But if you get a lot of strokes and you don't have a, a good sense, like I, I didn't when I was young, um, I didn't have a healthy ego, ego integrity. You know, I didn't for in, in my early years, didn't have, you know, a really strong father figure. So I didn't really know how to hold myself as a man in the world. And, mm. and, and when I got those strokes, when I got, you know, compliments or any kind of attention, just being on the stage, my ego did some somersaults and it cre- I started to create this really unhealthy um, character and it was getting me into situations I shouldn't have been in. And, uh, and so did you, here, well, here's, did, here's my, yeah. I was just wondering, did you ever feel like uh, when you would get these compliments, like it was setting, like it was set by people giving you compliments or almost like setting a standard that, that you would then have all this pressure on you to live up to, to like achieve, like if someone tells you, you know, gives you this like compliment, suddenly there's this weight on the other side of it of like, oh, that's what you see me as. Now I have to try to like fulfill that image or live up to what you guys are saying. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And also that there's a side of you sort of like that, that starts to believe in your greatness. Hmm. And then you're also battling with, I was with my insecurity as just a person knowing my flaws, you know, just, and so there was this duality. I was feeling split between the Tony who I thought was, you know, great. And people were telling me I was great. And the real Tony who was suffering from, you know, trying to become a man, come going through life struggles, things that, you know, where I didn't feel whole, So you thrust that kind of insecure person on the spotlight and you play some good music and people like it and they're telling you you're great. Part of you believes it and part of you doesn't believe it. Mm -hmm. And now you're in this turmoil and this unhealthy character started to build. And my whole point, though, was it's easy to believe when you quit your your thing and you take a break that the problem is with the music or the music industry and that just being in it, you're going to become tainted. Right. And when I took that break, I built up my ego integrity in this really level, clear way. And then I started, you know, four or five years later, I started to dip my toe back in. Cause look, man, I love the game. Hmm. I love getting up on stage. I love rocking it. And, uh, and so I started to dip my toe carefully, a couple steps forward. Oh, am I going to get back into my own old patterns no i'm gonna pull right back and from there i could build this more sure-footed thing that that was more about like you were saying we're gonna bring it back to basketball i know i like to bring it personal you know but um but sort of like you go in you come back and instead of being an individualist only you're a team player you see that maybe you can play a role in you know in in a team setting so that you're not, you know, feeding that demon too much or something. So I think that after watching this doc, Jordan came back. The team had been, you know, really developing and 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 really starting to play more team ball. And now that they had some W's without Jordan, made it, you know, they made it early in, in the, the playoffs, right? They had a good playoff run one year. Um, they kind of proved themselves to themselves that they deserve to be playing with the great Michael Jordan. And and then Jordan could see that. I'm sure Jordan was watching, you know, I saw him at the games watching. 
um, them play. And I'm sure he was like, oh, man, well, if they can do it without me, I got to come back and integrate. And you kind of do see those last three years. Um, you know, they say, what was the years that they said was the greatest Bulls team? I think that was 95, 96. 95, 96. So you start to see the team be the thing, you know. And you mentioned kind of Phil Jackson, um, like uh, Zen-like quality, you know. And what more do you need? You know, you need that to balance out the the diva personalities, you know, of somebody like Jordan, Pippen, and Rodman, you know, and the rest of them. Those kind of personalities aren't just team players, but they're also individuals with their own goals and needs, and right. you know all the complexity that comes from that. So let's get, let's get back to Space Jam. Right. So you know, so then we're getting to the point where, um, you know, the documentary was awesome because we got this inside view into Michael Jordan's return to the NBA. And what happened was he was filming Space Jam at the same time where he was starting to grease the wheels and get back with the Bulls. And what he did, which was really kind of sly, was um, WB had set him up a full-size basketball court so that he could get into shape because he was out of shape. Um, During the season where he came back, remember he was out of shape with the Bulls. He came in for a partial season. Now it was the off season and he's like, all right, I got to get yoked so I can put up, you know, so I have stamina and I could play again. They set him up the full basketball court um, at the studios where they're filming Space Jam so that all his free time, he would go do eight hours of filming and then he would be in the gym for another eight or whatever, you know, just with the work ethic, getting back into shape, NBA shape. And what he did was he invited a bunch of the league's all-stars um, into the gym to play pickup. And that footage was so cool to oh, watch. Was and it was before Rodman was on the squad, right? I'm pretty sure that Jordan was like, all right, here's, yeah, I, think the, so. I think there might be some potential guys that we could work some trades for. And you could see Rodman in there um, and him sort of like getting to know some of these all-stars and how they played. And, you know, Jordan was somebody who really, I think, sized, like to size up his opponents and kind of understand them psychologically so that he could tear them down, you know? Right. So that was really cool to see him sort of like watching the guys and deciding maybe who the Bulls wanted to make a play for. Yeah, uh yeah, and, and and just to speak to that, you know, what I really took away from that was Jordan sizing up all the other studs in the league, knowing he was coming back, giving them an opportunity to play in this, like, all-star game and being very acutely aware of how he was going to deal with each one of them individually. Yeah. And then coming back with that knowledge to this team and... Uh, and also trying to settle... You know, people were talking like, oh, well, Jordan, he can't even, he's not going to be able to come back and compete. He's been training for baseball, which is a whole different kind of training. You know, you can't play with us, Jordan. I'm sure people were spurring him on. And I'm sure Jordan, you know, being so competitive, wanted to prove, you know, his greatness and and go slam a jam on, right. on him and be like, look, I could still ball on all of you guys. Totally. Totally. And I think that, you know, 
one of the major themes that I find like kind of hilarious. Um, sorry, there's like, I don't know if you guys can hear it. There's like this annoying. Is that a washing machine? There's like a fan or something. Yeah, you know, just a little fan action. We are, we're fil- we're uh, recording this from, um, you know, Bartcast Studios, a.k.a., uh, you know, from this Hobie's couch. We got this beautiful window here that gives you the full view of the neighborhood streets. And it's just such a beautiful day out here. But, you know, what comes with the, the home, home studio recording is uh, there's going to be little house sounds here and there, some creaky, creaky walls. You know, stuff like that. You know, some fans. All right, we're back. Sorry, guys. Just uh, was trying to be perfect. And uh, if the, if that rattling sound is driving you crazy, apologies. And we'll just try to talk over it. But uh, yeah. maybe it won't even come out. Who knows? Um, where, where were we? What were we talking about? So we were just talking about Jordan. He set up his, you know, his little private league of all-stars. You know, on the off season, he's got the WB court that right. they gave him. Meanwhile, he's filming Space Jam, and uh, and the other players are like, "How is this guy training?" So he he's training in the morning. Yeah. Then he goes, he films Space Jam for eight hours. Yeah. And then he days. he goes and he plays pickup all night. You know, with these guys, they're they're just looking at him like, "This guy's a female." Well, that was my takeaway too from the whole Last Dance doc, which is like when does this guy sleep? Like he didn't seem like he was getting a lot of sleep and yet he never, you know, aside from one injury earlier in his career, the guy played like every game and didn't really suffer any big injuries. And it just, he was just literally one of those like physical specimens that just, you know, that's, that's something that maybe gets less talked about. But one of the things that, uh, you know, one of the parallels that I really see with, or, or one of the symbols that I think was kind of hilarious in uh, Space Jam is this whole idea that Michael Jordan lines out that Michael Jordan's gone from the NBA. All the players lose their talent, <laughs> yeah. right? The NBA gets shut down. It's actually this interesting scene to watch oh, right yes. now during the pandemic because the NBA, there's this shot at the LA Forum where they're closing all basketballs canceled. And it's kind of like a, a direct correlation to today. And then it, it's very topical, very topical, subject. very relevant. And then at the end of the movie, Michael Jordan comes back in the room and, Oh, here's the ball. And he then gives <laughs> yeah, the talent gives the back talent. to the players. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and then he makes his triumphant return to the league. So I think for, I, 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 I won't, I want to reiterate because I think you brushed over it and I just want to go back, which is that um, basically what what in Space Jam, what the, the league is saying, because these these all stars lost their talent in this way that nobody understands, they assume that there's some kind of pandemic that could affect other NBA stars. So they shut down the league right. as a thing. You you kind of said that, but I wanted yeah, to just yeah, make totally. it clear. And 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 it, it was really interesting to watch with what we're going through now, you know, because me and my brother went back and we watched Space Jam, you know, before the podcast, just to 
you know, brush up and, and get some of the more details to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so to watch that was really like, man, this is this is a trip. Right. You know? Yeah. It, was, it, it felt like seems like the right time to be discussing space. Jam. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Another reason why, why this is a great choice. But uh, but yeah, I just thought that was like super funny that like uh, just this image of Jordan coming back with the ball and bringing the talent back to the NBA. I think that was like a symbolic move that he was very aware of putting into this film um, that, you know, he gets to be the kingmaker. He gets to come back and, you know, return the the talent to the league. And uh, so, you know, and, and to do so like kind of in the face of Chuck of Charles Barkley, you know, like there's these this great scene of Charles Barkley going to try to play pickup after he's lost all his talent. Oh yeah, one of my favorite favorite Amazing scene. scene. There's this girls all girls game in in like New York somewhere and they're playing and he goes and he's just standing and hanging out at the at the chain link fence and the music's playing Basketball Jones, you know. You got a basketball Jones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh he's just bumming and then the girls get excited and they're like, "Yeah, he's like, could I play with y'all?" And then he tries to play, and they just take him to school. And then, and then there's that famous line: the girl's like, "Man, you ain't no Charles Barkley. Like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. you're just someone that looks like him." And he's just like, "Oh, you know." And yeah. you know, to there was a bit of like a Jordan, you know, hires Charles. Like, hey, you want to be in a big budget Hollywood film? Charles is like, "Of course." Signed the line. Yeah, exactly. You know? I wonder how much of the script Chuck read before he, yeah. he said yes. And then so basically, you get your talent taken away, and I give it back to right. you. Right, and and you got to go get schooled in this pickup game by a by bunch these of girls, youngsters. Yeah. So you see this like humbling of Barkley by at the hands of Jordan, and the two of them had faced off in in the championships, and uh, so you know, in a way, I think Space Jam in this sense as a way for Jordan to also kind of proclaim his glory and as well as like kind of maybe get a little payback against some of uh, his rivals, you know, Ewing, Ewing is also someone that Jordan went head to head with numerous times. Yeah. And I, you know, Ewing is somebody I just heard an interview with Ewing and he was saying that he was like, man, I didn't watch any of the last dance. I had to live through it. Right. You know, because Ewing was a prospect, high draft pick. Everybody thought that he was going to be, you know, the next uh, big man league champ. You know, where the, you know, Kareem or what, Wilt Chamberlain. Who are these big, you know, centers who dominated the league pre-Jordan era? You know, you were starting to get these sort of like tall, off guard, kind of small forward dominators like bird you know um and magic kind of Mm. point guard these kind of playmaker scorers but we hadn't had like the jordan yet right so the big men were dominating the league they were these epic scorers so you know patrick ewing came into the league thinking that he was going to be the guy who just led his teams to glory right in time for the jordan years and so He's a little salty. Of course, he's Jordan's friend, but he was saying, man, I don't need to watch all that because it's kind of the story of him getting beaten. Totally, totally. And everybody's competitive, you right, know. Right, So, yeah, I mean, and and I think that's just, you know, in a way, like Jordan, just how he did with the doc, but was like using Space Jam as a vehicle to not only reintroduce himself into the league, 
but also to establish him establish himself as the greatest and to kind of in in classic you know machiavellian jordanian you know <laughs> a way to kind of like you know take out the knees of some of his rivals before he re-enters the league you know yeah and um you know the, the but the reason why the film works and the reason why the film is actually a good movie is that it's not it, while it is like a lot of it is kind of like this Michael Jordan suck off that's tempered with just the right amount of self-deprecating i mean the whole movie opens with like Jordan striking out in baseball and everybody's like real nice to him but he's just like you know, and the and the catcher's giving him all the signs, telling him what yeah. to swing on, and he still strikes out. Right. And so there's this whole kind of like, I'm gonna laugh at myself. Yeah, why why did I go do that baseball thing? Like that's kind of silly. He's the one making that point, and so you actually identify. You see this Jordan in the start of the, the movie. human, right? That's that's what I'm talking about. Like in the '90s, like we weren't getting the inside scoop of who Jordan is. He yeah. wasn't like on his his. You know, like nowadays you'll get LeBron with his face talking to everybody on his little phone. You know, we don't have that immediacy. So so what we were getting was really filtered, curated views to build Jordan up to be this right. flawless. Commercially driven. Commercially, you know, it was like we were only getting this marketed view of who Michael Jordan was, which was great and nothing else. Totally. And so here was Jordan's way of being like, look. I'm a human and let's, you know, there, there's all those scenes, you know, where he's dealing with the different like little personality types who are dealing with Jordan. You know what I mean? So yeah, the guy yeah. comes up and he's all googly eyed and he's looking at him and he's stumbling over himself. Right. And, uh, and a lot, you know, a lot of people don't see that side of fame where what's it like to walk in Jordan's shoes for a day. And there was a, enough of that to where you started to be like, oh, okay, like, this is what Jordan has to put up with on the dailies. These people goggling at him. Totally. No one treats him normally. Right. Everyone's giving him like the easy road. Like you were saying, the catcher was like, this next one's a curveball. You know, don't they're swing. all, don't <laughs> swing. They're trying to get, everyone's trying to like the suck off, you know, yeah, yeah. trying to just polish his rod. And, uh, and so you got to, you know, for the first time, cause we didn't, you got the inside view of Jordan. And then also, you know, the beautiful part that makes the whole thing work is that it's done in this Barnum and Bailey's circus kind of uh, Looney Tune thing, which makes it light, makes it fun. Right. You know, and 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 one thing that I like, there's a couple points I have to make um, is that one watching the movie. Jordan like acts really well. Yeah, he does a great job. Like he seems natural, and you, you take it that he's playing himself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if anything, if you were talking about acting, he's a little too much of a gentleman. That's what <laughs> we're coming to realize right. is that he's the he's this soft spoken, really sweet, pure guy who's always just trying to you know in these situations. Yeah, his character flaw in the movie almost that he has to come to grips with. Is that he's a little too like too big of a heart. Yeah, not assertive enough. And the turning point in the movie is when the monsters walk on him a little too hard and they awaken 
Jordan, you know, the avatar, Jordan the Godhead. Well, let's look at the the pivotal moment. It's right. when they smack Tweety Bird, right? Right, right. That's when he turns on. So he's he's protecting the little guy. That's that's like the narrative, and that's the part that's sort of like a PR thing. Uh-huh. Like he's trying to paint himself as this whole family man right. who's holistically or um, you know, wholesome. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what, what was my other point? Um, he that he one that he acted really well. It holds up. It's right. not like oh, celebrity is in the movie. It's like mm-hmm. no, he's doing well. And the other thing that I think really holds up um, and makes it great is that um, that when you watch the the Looney Tunes when they're in Looney Tuneville or whatever Looney Tune World, they WB or uh, no Warner Brothers. That's not WB. Yeah, it is. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. yeah, of course, Warner Brothers. <laughs> yeah. Um, Warner Brothers uh, did a great job of pulling all the shticks back that we love about the Looney Tunes. So it wasn't like a phoned-in Looney Tune experience. Like they were doing all the classics. They were painting every classic Looney Tune that we love. The Daffy Duck ego. You got to see all the little right. egos of the characters. You know how Bugs well, Bunny is sort of the one who kind of like makes it all happen. You know, and you get... And and so for us Looney Tunes fans, it holds up in the Looney Tunes front. It holds up in the Michael Jordan well, yeah, front. Yeah, and, and and with the Looney Tunes too. And we talked about this as we were watching it. But I remember the way that they marketed one of the like angles that they marketed this film on was like the Looney Tunes for the first time in 3D. And they right. had like computer animated the Looney Tunes so that they actually had shading and dimension they weren't these old two-dimensional cartoons and that was like you know this was during the age when cgi was still like a pretty new thing and it was a big deal to like bring quote-unquote bring the looney tunes to life you know and that's really what they did like like there are some moments with bugs and with daffy where you get to see these like they develop their character a little more than like the episodic looney tunes cartoons would allow where daffy duck is this kind of like you know, takes on this, he's almost like playing the heel, you know, where he's like kind of the guy that's all a blowhard. Everyone messes with the duck. Yeah, but to to vast comedic relief, you know, and then you have each of them doing their shtick in a basketball context. What could be more 90s than that, you know? How about, uh, what? who is it? Uh, Sylvester, is that the cat? Yeah. That line is just one of my favorites. Everybody's planning out how you know what's the best way to win, or yeah, what is they're, it? they're trying to make a game plan. They're trying to make a game plan, and everyone's saying we could, you know, do this, we could do that, and then uh, you, then Sylvester is just like, yeah, we'll see. We get a ladder, <laughs> and then we go through the window while the when the widow's not home, and then we open the cage, and then we eat the bird. <laughs> we snatch that little bird. <laughs> that line is so classic. Yeah, there's so many great little asides, and, and and having I think that you know, and again, this is me speaking with my spirit dream weaver hat on. You know, if Jordan was the creative focus visionary of this, and and likely he wasn't, but it's, in my it mind, was most likely a collaboration. Yeah, but being able to see that Jordan alone does not a movie make, and that Jordan with like Jordan bringing in the Looney Tunes meant that Jordan didn't have to carry all the emotional weight of the story. And that Jordan actually, even though he was the star, 
he could kind of play there wasn't as much weight on him to carry it with his personality or his character and instead he was like the guy that the movie was happening to exactly and the right. and the in in some ways you could argue that Bugs Bunny is the protagonist he gets the girl at the end he's making these plays he's you know having to come to grips with his mortality with these aliens and Michael Jordan is like almost in a supporting role even though he's the star which is which is also interesting because that kind of perspective that things happen to Michael Jordan wasn't really in the media. Like we were all like Jordan went, Jordan did it. Right. Jordan w- is the best. Jordan won, you know. So to think that things happen to Jordan and that he gets wrapped up in this Looney Tunes plot. That things are where, out of his control. That are out of his control and that he gets tied in and he makes a deal with the head of Moron Mountain, Danny DeVito character, right. who's the clear, you know, he's like this capitalist, money-grubbing, sort of evil character. Cigar-smoking who, boss. Who exploits, he's the head of the franchise league who's going to exploit the talent to make money and he doesn't care about the talent. Right. He's going to turn them into a slave. So there's this side where it's like reckoning with the nasty side of pro sports, which is that these people are expendable and that they're they're basically amusement park attractions, and Carnival that's it. Barkers. So, uh, yeah, well, and you bring up a really good point, and and, and and there's another interesting parallel in there, which is during the final basketball game at the end, at halftime, Jordan makes uh, a parlay bet with this character, this nefarious you know, boss figure where he bets in return for the NBA player's talent. If he wins, he bets uh, that if he loses, he'll become a slave himself. Right. And they play this little animation clip that is so like poignant when taken in the context of the last dance, because the guy outlines for Jordan, what it means to lose his freedom. And he's like, you'll play for 10 hours a day and you'll always lose. And it's like this animation of like a real like heroic but beaten down Michael Jordan who's like in chains. He's got an ankle chain. He's got, and he's like, there's the kid can run up the stairs and dunk on him. And, and the, like, kid's, the kid is a customer at this evil guy's right, amusement park. Right. And you can beat Jordan and he'll sign you an autograph, you know, so that it's an attraction, right? Right, yeah. And, and the, just that, that, uh, you know, in many ways, this is Michael Jordan's, you know, worst fear to, to have to, you know, it, it, to me watching it with The Last Dance, I was looking at that episode where Michael Jordan was talking about what it was like, the weight of being this role model, the weight of having to sign a million autographs and you can't go anywhere without, hey, Mike, hey, Mike, hey, Mike, hey, Mike. You know, you showing up at some at someone's event is the biggest thing that's ever happened to them and what all that pressure means and I think that little montage was like the distillation of that energy of that feeling, you know, into this parent or this, you know, dark fantasy that he was, you know, potentially, you know, uh, signing up for. And so, um, to put that in the film to me was, was like symbolically representing, you know, one of the reasons Jordan left in the first place and kind of art therapying his way into coming to peace with, you know, this character. Yeah. You know, man, I, there's a perspective that I really am missing that I want, 
which is the director of Space Jam's perspective. I saw a picture of him and he looks just how you would expect. White, wild hair. But man, if you could ever call that guy, track him down and get an interview, boy, would that be some good, good insight on what is his view of Jordan? What was the, you know, what was the process of making Space Jam? Joe Pitka is his Joe name. Joe Pitka. Man, if we could get that perspective about, you know, the the making of Space Jam, you know, oh my God, <laughs> you know, that guy. Joe Pitka, if you Google Joe Pitka, the first picture comes up as this guy. He kind of looks like the haunted painting from Ghostbusters 2. Okay, kind of like that. He kind of looks like that. <laughs> and he also kind of looks like, um, oh, what is that? Like one of those, uh, it's like some 90s show where like, there's some like skeleton guy in his head, or is it Indiana Jones where when he drinks from the, oh, the yeah, goblet yeah. at the end He's of like halfway through like the transformation of the aging at the end of Last Crusade? <laughs> yeah, and and is, and he, it, halfway through his head drinking, you know? yeah. he also kind of looks like the guy from uh, the Disaster Artist, The Room, you know. Like an old version of that guy from that. Okay, or the last one I'll say is Back to the Future, homie. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Frankly. Okay, so now hopefully you can triangulate a view of what this guy looks like. <laughs> but it would be so good to get his perspective on what the process of making it is because we're going on speculation. But I don't think that that fella went to Michael Jordan with a finished script. I just have, would have a really hard time. because, And that's the part that, to me, is so moving about Space Jam is that it seems personal. It right. seems like Michael Jordan had a stake in creating the story of being like, this is kind of how it is for me. This, And then at the same time, you get this guy who's able to weave the Looney Tunes and create this fun little narrative, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's... that's uh, man... If if only you're gonna have to do some work and and try to contact totally, that guy. Totally, that'd be such a good follow. up That'd be a great follow up. I, you know. But okay, so the another thing that I wanted to talk about was some of the some of the cameos. Yeah. In yeah. Space Jam, because they're so excellent. You know, um, I'll I'll talk about one right now. Bill Murray. Oh man, his role is awesome, and I love the scenes on the golf course when when he's talking shit with Larry. It's him, Larry Bird. And Jordan, and uh, and I want to talk about something in particular because it's totally relates to me personally. Um, is that Bill Murray is talking about how he he wants to play for the league? Yeah, he wants yeah. to play in the NBA, and he thinks he could do it because he's got game. Maybe they're looking for some fresh talent, right. you know. And uh, it's and an, it's an amazing like subplot. There's this subplot which is like. You know, when you're thinking about the different characters in the movies, like what's their motivation? What are they trying to get in this story? You know, Bill Murray's subplot is that he's rubbing, he's rubbing always, shoulders. Well, with... he's always wanted to play in the league. And so his character is trying to advocate, you know, in this time when all the stars in the league are, are out, you know. Yeah. He's trying to see if he can he sees get his, his window. Yeah. But also that brings up something that like, okay, talking about being a kid during the Jordan era... Um, that was the time in life. I don't know. You know, it's probably like this for every young sports player. I was sure I was going to make the league. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) I, I was, I was going to be an NBA star. I hadn't done the math yet. You know, I hadn't, you know, hit 
you know, I always felt like a growth spurt was coming, you know, never came, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Tell you know, me about it. <laughs> you know, so like I thought I was going to make the league. Me and my buddies would be like, oh, yeah, man, I, I want to play for the so and so's. I want to do this. Oh, man, I'm going to be like Mike. I'm going to be Jordan. And so it just brings up that that, you know, when you're young, you dream, you think that anything's possible. And then maybe you don't hit that growth spurt and you know you're not going to be one of the one of the guys. There's few guys like Muggsy Bogues. How how tall is Muggsy? 5'1", 5'3"? I think he's 5'3", yeah. 5'3", and you watch that guy's – that's another thing. Muggsy Bogues, you watch his ball handling Ooh. when he gets his when he gets his power back. Oh, yeah. You know that little scene? He's doing yeah. some little uh, – what's Spider that Spider drill. Spider drill. He's yeah. dribbling around his legs. Um, and I thought that was excellent. Another character I think that you'll probably have some good insight on Hope is uh, is um, who was it Newman from Seinfeld? Yeah, Wayne, Wayne Knight is the name of the actor. And I actually have a take on this guy. You know, especially like watching Space Jam in the context of of the Last Dance, and there's been so much talk in this documentary painting Jerry Krause, the general manager of. The, the the bulls is carrying all the blame for the for the bulls breaking up when they did it, he's an easy target yeah easy target i mean if you look at the guy he looks like you know lord of the schmuck <laughs> yeah but when you see when you watch space jam in this context it's very clear that wayne knight is jerry Krause. That this character is like this suck up to Jordan, bumbling side man who's like just so, you know, kind of uh, like sycophantic. Just, can I get you this, Jordan? I'll pick you up at three and oh, oh. To the point where he's a hassle for Jordan. Exactly. And that, you know, he comes back at the end and Jordan gives him his, you know, his little moment where he is able to make a difference and he makes a basket at a really important time. But, you know, he's kind of a pathetic figure. I'll tell you, you say pathetic, you know, another, what's a synonym, sad for pathetic. Um, but I but I have a personal story about watching Space Jam that just came to me. Sure. When I was little, you know, I, I was really, um, like, like, when I watched Space Jam and I saw that character, I felt really bad for him. Mm. Like, I, I remember lying in bed after watching Space Jam. This is totally like an eight-year-old thing to do. But, it, like, all he wanted was to be admired and liked by Michael Jordan. And he <laughs> wanted it so bad. And he just couldn't get anything right. And my little eight-year-old self, I remember, like, borderline, like, ha- feeling, like, feelings. Like, compassion for this guy being right. like, man, he, like... Like I looked at that character and I was like, man, he didn't do anything wrong. He's trying his best and he's just somebody who just this character just lacks natural ability. Yeah. Next to the guy who has the most natural ability. Right. So, you know, that that perspective of like, you know, I don't know, just the little kid who's like pity the putts. Pity, pity the putts, you know. Yeah. He he's has his little redemption. He comes back in and uh and he gets he ends up turning into yeah. a balloon. But yeah. Wayne Knight, I mean, incredible performance. Incredible performance. He plays Perfect. the role of like the putsy wannabe assistant, like, the best in the best way. Um, and uh, yeah, and you know, just to tag back also on you know Bill Murray, you know, one of my favorite actors all time. You know, one of the my main takeaways in this last 
watching of Space Jam. Um, and I and I totally suggest that any of you who are planning on on watching it uh, really strive to do this too. There are so many little bitten off lines at the end of scenes in this movie where there'll be a little, you know, rejoinder, non sequitur, just a little innuendo that will be dropped that's kind of like hidden in the mix. Like like the arc of the scene has already, you know, run its course and and it's like the last couple seconds of the of the scene and it'll be like Bill Murray and you know, Larry Bird in a golf cart and it's about to fade in the next scene. And then you just hear their dialogue. And there's this little, all these little lines that like when I was a kid, they were way over my head and I didn't really like ever catch them or, or know that they were part of the movie. Yeah. But for adults who, who maybe are a little more tuned in, there's all these great like double entendres and innuendos that are a little racy and that are like, you know, kind of, uh, don't you love family films that are, that hit on different levels so that you can appreciate them as a parent watching it with your kid. I love that. And, and yeah, I, I totally, those little quips there's, there's like, I love when, when a, a movie has jabs from famous person to famous person that, that is in the movie. So you can say it cause it's, quote unquote fiction yeah but there's like some personal like kind of prodding happening i think there's a with a guy like bill murray i think they there's some ad lib that goes on he's kind of an ad libber type you know he's going to be coming up with little things and i'm sure that directors like to let him have a little you know liberty to make a quip or to Mm, murray go murray murray go murray that's a Oh, and then let's talk about this. So when he finally, you know, gets to play in the final game, how about that little Jason kid, you know, Steph Curry behind the back pass? Yeah, that was so... Like, they gave him the perfect, like, almost like white men can't jump style. Backwards cat. You know, white boy basketball style where maybe, maybe you're not the lead scorer, but you got that... I always kind of associated with that role when I was on the court because I was never the biggest baller. Yeah. But one of my go-to moves is the no-look behind the back pass. I remember pulling that move and, you know, it's just a crowd-pleaser move. Right. You know, and I'm pretty accurate with it. I can get it off to where it's like an actual useful high percentage pass. So I just love when a white boy just fucking like <laughs> laces somebody with a right. nice little behind-the-back well, flip. I was going to say that, you know, his his kind of basketball style watching that movie you know it almost kind of reminded me of a young ryan creighton (laughs) shout out to our boy ryan creighton you know but like rye cray had this very specific crossover move that he would do and maybe it was that i you know we were hanging out with ryan a lot when we saw space jam and we definitely all watched it together but uh you know uh murray's moves you know a little ryan creighton-esque yeah yeah it's true uh but but definitely a good feature of this film and uh i love i love the line too um so after they play the game jordan's like hey man you really got some moves maybe you got a chance at the league Mm -hmm. and bill murray has like had his shot and he's come to his senses and he's hobbling off the court because his knees are bad and he's like no, no, no. I've realized now. So, like, there's this sort of, like, uh, beautiful thing where everyone wants to be in the league, mm-hmm. but no one really knows what it takes except for the players. And that's a, that's another point that I want to make just about professional sports in general and about watching the, the um, Last Dance doc is that when we're watching basketball, is a great example, from the sideline, 
it's easy to just see you're watching from your couch your heart rate's not up you're not working out and you're watching these little guys run around it's little. E- <laughs> well they're little on the screen right that's what i'm trying to say is that they're you don't really it's hard to fathom like how much physically the game takes right. what is nba fitness really about how fast does that fitness drain like if you take a year off can you just go and run 45 minutes on the court you know it's so easy to just think because you think it's all a technical thing who's got the best touch but that fitness element is so huge in professional sports then the margin of error you know like if you are a couple seconds late on your normal speed that's going to throw a big wrench in things you know totally i mean i know You know, one of the things I can't wait to do, you know, one of the first things I'm going to do when this shelter in place ends is go hit the local pickup games, which I've been like thirsting for. Um, and I've been doing my best during this time off to, to keep my regimen up, to be doing my cross training, to keep my cardio up. And I feel pretty good about where I'm at physically, but basketball fitness is a whole nother ball game. And I know that it's going to be rough for those first, you know, couple weeks of trying to get back on the court, all the little lateral movement changes. And when you're, when you're talking about the pro level, the level of fitness that everybody has been at and maintaining is something that I think like none of us really can know until you're in that spot. And, you know, in the last dance, they talk about Jordan coming back at the end of the 95 season and he's out of shape. And even though he's in crazy good shape, better shape than any of us, for the league, he was a little behind. And so as good as Jordan was, he wasn't at his peak, in his peak range yet because he had to come back in, put the reps in, put the time in, training to really get there. You're going to start missing shots if you're out of breath. That's something that, you know, you could be a great shot, but are you a good game shooter? Because you're going to have to shoot when you're breathing hard. Totally. And, you know, it's it's such a small margin of error whether you're going to make that shot. You know, and... Um, well, you know, I, almost, I almost feel like... And I was talking about this the other day. I was playing Frisbee. Uh, and I think that, you know, the brain takes an enormous amount of oxygen for thought, for thinking. Thinking is like a super... And thinking creatively is like a super resource-heavy endeavor for your body to do. Mm-hmm. And it's my perspective, you know, as I was running and playing, I would notice that you get in these stages where you're like stages where you're like fully exerting and you get to a point where you're, you're physically, it's taking everything just to hold it together. And there's a mental, mental lapses can then occur to actually like focus on tracking an object, making a catch or putting up a jumper. You have to be in this focused mind state. And if you're out of breath, you're not able to give as much oxygen to your totally. brain. It's harder to like maintain that composure when you're trying to do these fine muscle memory motor movements. Uh, and that's really what I think so much of the conditioning is about is totally. like how, how much of that, of those windows can you give yourself? How big of a window can you give yourself of like intense focus when you're at the peak, you know, when you're at the limits of your physical totally. exhortation? Yeah, that's a good point. And I, you know, it made me remember something, um, you know, I wanted to speak personally and and you'll totally know what I'm talking about. Um, my, my, 
brother and I, our uncle through marriage, we didn't get, you know, the genes, but he was a NBA player. Um, Greg, shout out Greg Lee. Greg Lee. And, uh, and he, he actually had a, a, a real good career. He played for, um, you know, the world famous, uh, UCLA team with Bill Walton Walton, and then he went to the Blazers um and uh and one day we were you know around uh, Christmas break we go down to LA and we we hang with that side of the family and we're watching some sports probably watching some Warriors maybe it was a Warriors Cavs uh Christmas special or something like that um Saturday game or something Lakers if we're in LA I th- maybe it was, but I started talking trash on LeBron like us us Bay Area people do, and uh, and I remember him, you know, um, standing up for LeBron in his gentle way that he would. He's such a level headed guy, but I could tell that there was this sense of respect because he'd been in the league and he knows what it takes to be a champ. Or at least he was around the champ. He was around good players. He even says that he stuffed Jordan once. He oh. got a block on him, Clinker which I think is awesome. Yeah. You know, uh, but he's he's trained with those guys and he knows what that takes. And so me talking trash on LeBron, even though it's just a fan rivalry thing, he he's got this other kind of understanding of what it takes to be a LeBron. And so he, I think he's the type of guy, you know, where he's like, look, man, like. I got respect for the people who, you know, the kind of workout that it takes, you know, to create LeBron, even though we all hate on him, especially because he's like this guy who, you know, has some character flaws in my eyes, maybe, you know, calls himself the goat, you know, compares himself to Jordan. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the end um, about Space Jam 2 and right. you know like there's there's a lot of people kind of saying that he doesn't deserve a Space Jam and I think that we have a pretty good take on you know why we don't feel that there should even be a Space Jam 2 and it's not because LeBron hate um and we, I never see I never my my like chief beef with LeBron has always been you know with the comparison that's made between him and Jordan because in my mind, like there ain't going to be no more Jordans. Like Jordan was this thing that came up in the league at a specific time, not just the league, but the society, right. And, and the world and, and all that. And I heard it recently articulated. I think it was like on a, on like a Bill Burr podcast or something, but he was making this point and, and it's really stuck with me as, I think like the chief difference that that puts Jordan in the goat category and puts LeBron in the one of the greats category cuz LeBron game no recognized game doubt. LeBron is one of the greatest basketball players I've actually come to like him and respect yeah. him more in the last you know in the last few years he's become this um facilitator you've watched him mature even in his public fit like as a public figure like there's a few less gaffes nowadays. He seems like he's a little older and wiser. I think when you start to lose your hair, you right, know. Right, <laughs> but he's still trying to make Space Jam too. But anyways, yeah, yeah. My my point was that Michael Jordan, you know, in, in watching The Last Dance, he loses to the Pistons, right? In in the uh, in the finals, or maybe it was in the Eastern Conference Championships. Was that the year that he came back? 
No, this is no, this is early before, on. This That's is right. the year before, before they the win. Their they, first, yeah, their first title. And yeah. the bad boy Pistons had been beating up on the Bulls, keeping Jordan down. And what does Jordan do? He, him, and the rest of the team. He he inspires his team to not take the summer off, and they spend the whole summer working out, conditioning, working on their game. Jordan starts lifting. Jordan puts on muscles and weight. And they come back the next year and they beat the they, Pistons. And they just obliterate them. Right. right. And so, to me, did Jordan move to, to Detroit? No. He put in the effort to become to make his team great, to make his city great. He also stayed in Chicago and won those titles and played for the same team. You can say he came back and played for the Wizards. It's almost like an addendum to Jordan's career. He couldn't stay away right. like we're talking but, about. But for his peak years, definitely, he wasn't one of these guys that moved around. And to contrast that with LeBron, couldn't get it done in Cleveland. So he leaves and goes to Miami to win his titles. And to me, that is really where I hang my hat on the difference between the two guys. One of them left to go win, and one of them stayed, worked on himself, changed the game, and 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 inspired his team. And I think that that is that sort of like, you know, and yeah, you can say the league's different. You know, I think yesterday on, you know, my or Monday on my favorite, you know, radio show, shout out Jolo and Dibs 95.7 The Game, they were talking about how, that, um, you know, Jordan's real, you know, what, what makes a player truly great? Not only do you have to have the wins, not only do you have to have the skills uh, and the leadership, but you have to have changed the game. Jordan changed the game. He made shoes a huge thing. He made basketball, went going, went for, the NBA was in 80 countries after he brought it to 250 countries. What was LeBron's? You know, contribution. His contribution was that he made it okay for players to leave and be their own, you know, uh, in charge of their own brand, and that's what he's credited as. You know, he went to go to another team, and now we have this league where players are leaving left and right. You, you know, let's all go to this team. Look, I'll call out the Dubs. We did it with KD, and I was against that tra- that move. I love Kevin Durant, but I was of the opinion, you know, that like. I thought that we were a more interesting team to watch pre-KD, and I'm excited for this next season because I think that while, yeah, KD came and we had the super team, it wasn't good for the league, it wasn't good for the sport, and I think that it would have been a much more compelling matchup had he stayed at OKC and built up a team around him. At the same time, I'll put it out there because I've, I've always been a Kevin Durant fan, and I wasn't as sore about him as a lot of people, and, and you know, um, I think that in this league where the LeBrons have opened up the world to sort of player choice to create these super teams, if that's what's going on, man, like let's let Kevin Durant get on that squad and let's see what this super team's about. You know, we're in the the age of super teams and, and, you know, I was always a fan of Kevin. People would give him a lot of heat and I just see him as one of the greatest players of all time. I loved watching him. I even thought that he, that he had a pretty, you know, pretty nice, calm persona as far as things go. I know that there's 
you know, some kind of catty stuff that goes on in the media. But you never know what to trust because people are just trying to spin people's words to inflame things. Him and Draymond, that whole thing. And, you know, and you got to give, you almost got to give Durant some respect for the fact that he went into this whole situation. He didn't know what it was going to be like. And he he won some titles and then he was like hey just like kids on the the playground when you got that winning squad all night a true competitor is going to go and be like look like we keep winning let's switch up the teams i want a challenge so durant saw that and he's like look now i got to go i got to you know try to do this you know let's make the league interesting again so you got to you know you got to give him some strokes for that i'm a huge kd fan you know and i think that we got to own him in the Bay as part of that magical Bay culture and not just look at him as some kind of freeloader, you know? Right. That's yeah. just my take. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't think I all respect to KD and I had a blast watching him. I'm just, yeah. my point was just that, you know, call me old fashioned, but I long for the days when being on a team meant representing a city and you were going to, you know, make your career there and, and that, uh, and and that meant that well, some. Let yeah. me just finish. That meant some some uh, some stars didn't get their ring, you know. Right. And and I could see how that for the for the players themselves. If I was an NBA player, maybe I'd have I'd have a different perspective. I'm just talking as a fan. I I look at those days when, you know, being on a team meant a, a greater level of commitment, you know, towards you know. I, I'm just saying as the goat. That, in my eyes, is what makes Jordan the GOAT, is that rather than going somewhere else to win, he stayed and worked on his game. You thought he was the best. Well, he got better. So, you know? And you know, and, and they, they were able to put together a team that was able to string together those championships. Totally. An- another take, too, about Jordan's greatness. Um, I'm a big believer in when you have somebody like Jordan who rises to international fame, who becomes more than a more than basketball, he becomes this cultural icon. It has to be, there has to be a culture that's ready for that, that wants that, that's on this edge. And then he becomes the poster boy for that. You know, I would make a parallel to, um, you know, a lot of us guys who like old music, there's these times in history where the music means a lot to the people. Um, you know, the 60s was a time where things really exploded. Even in the 70s, there's these golden eras where emotionally things are more charged, you know. So um, the question is this. Okay, so let's say LeBron, we bring the NBA back from this coronavirus thing and he his team ends up, the Lakers end up winning a ring. Is that ring on par with Jordan era ring, right? Because it's a half league, you know. So what does the ring represent in itself? What's the value of the ring? Because one year it might be easier to win the ring. It's not like a standard gold standard measurement that you can just count on. One right. A ring one year might mean one thing. And I just wanted to make the point that one of the big differences between Jordan and other players that I've seen and one of the reasons why I think that he was such a cultural icon, besides from being so talented on the floor and such an athlete, was um, that you watch those old videos and you realize that who cared more than Jordan? Jordan cared so much emotionally 
that when he gets those titles, people who aren't even into basketball watch that guy and how stoked he was right. to win. Right. He wanted to win more than anybody. Totally. And he did the work. And when he got that, it's it's like there's this thing where like it, the, the emotional intensity of Jordan, um, the whole world got to watch that. And so, and kind of live vicariously. Yeah, through. and so there's this whole sort of like human part of the equation where um, nowadays, you know, just like there was those golden eras of music when the music meant so much to the masses. Nowadays, you might have some players who are equally as talented as somebody who became a star back when, and they make some really great art that, if it was released back then, might even have even been, you know more successful than it is today because it's a different landscape now. Um, there isn't one Jordan in the league. You know what I mean? We got Kawhi. We got LeBron. You know, we got Curry. We got, uh, you know, all these all-stars. All who, when you look at the stats, some of them are out doing Jordan even. You know what I mean? Like, the game's evolved. There's people who have gotten to watch Jordan, model their games. You got the Kobe's. You know, the people who modeled their game post-Jordan era. Um, and now the game has changed. And also what it means to win a ring has changed. You know, um, teams are more tactical these days. You know what I mean? So it's not as much of one guy carrying the team on his back. People are, franchises are making office decisions to tactically win the league. So there isn't as much of this sort of fast and loose, you know, um, thing anymore. It's more calculated. Right. That's the way it feels. So it's a little less emotionally charged in some ways as the golden 90s pre-social media where you're watching this guy and, man, he hits that game winner and you watch him jump about 100 feet up in the air and throw his fist and that face, that intensity... I think these are the things that connect with the the um, the audience, you know. And I always like to point out the more like superficial aspect of Jordan's success. Just look at the way the guy looks. He looks like a champ. He's just like this perfectly proportioned, you know. He you look at his face. He's charismatic. Good looking man. You know what I mean? Like I just can't see a Blake Griffin <laughs> holding that same. Uh, wait, you know what I mean? He's not, Blake Griffin could be incredible, but Jordan was more than a great basketball player. He He looked the part. And what I'm trying to say is the culture was ready for the guy who looked like that, who could play like that. And it was this perfect storm. And I, I think it's also important to, you know, you know, just, just piggybacking on what on everything you just said which were all like really great points um the uh just just weighing the cultural value of each piece each bit of content now these days as you've said a couple times you know in this conversation back when we were growing up there wasn't unlimited content. We didn't have the internet. We couldn't go up and Google, you know, or, or find on YouTube Jordan's top 10 career plays. If you wanted to see those, you had to buy the box set or you had to wait for a special on TV, right? And so 
I think Jordan coming came up in an era when there was a little bit of a limit placed on how much everyone got to experience him. There wasn't the six-part cooking channel show where he was doing it with someone. It wasn't this right. everyday Instagram, social media posting thing. And thus, you know, that, you know, supply and demand aspect of it meant that every little piece of Jordan content you could get was so worth its weight in gold and the fact that there wasn't that much of it meant that as little kids we were filling in we were connecting all the dots in our own imagination jordan lived in my imagination you know i think about and my jordan's different from yours right right and i think about you know remembering what jordan was like to me it was almost on par with like like a Pete's Dragon, you know, like who's Pete's Dragon? I don't know. It's like a movie in the the seventies or eighties with like this kid finds a magical creature that becomes its friend, you know. So he's and like I, your luck dragon. Yeah, like I thought of like MJ as like this kind of all wise like magical creature that like you know if I had met Jordan, maybe we would go on an adventure and you know mm. in a magical land, and that's kind of what watching Jordan as a kid was was like Jordan represented to me that kind of childhood open-eyed you know I was building a whole fantasy a whole fantasy story in my head about what this hero meant you know right. who he was and and these days with so much of the story already being told to you via media all these mediated channels there's less room for like us all to engage our imagination and creating, you know, the gravitas or creating these characters, giving it so much weight that, I mean, I think that's a, not just a, uh, you know, critique of, of Jordan and the story, but maybe just the culture in general, you know, and, and, and media in general. And, you know, there, there's a lot less, uh, imagination work being done per capita in today's culture. Yeah, oh man, it's just like the regurgitation of, you know, just just any little video, any little thing that a famous person says, 10 people spin it, you know, it's really hard to know what to believe, who's the credible source, no one does enough fact check, right? and it, and they people make money off spinning things, you know. Um, you know, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about, um, I read an article, you know, every time that The Last Dance gets... Um, the new episode comes out. There's people who are commenting on it. There's a lot of cool commentary and articles out there. And one of them was saying, you know, we all know that the last dance was highly from the Jordan perspective. Like he got to have a lot of pr production, what gets to be put in, what doesn't. He gets to have the final word on everything. You know, it's sort of Jordan explaining this experience and explaining this footage. Um, and uh, and so that bias is definitely in there. Um, and this article was saying that the unspoken thing that we all kind of understand that wasn't really talked about as much was almost like, um, is it is it worth it? Like to be this sort of unhealthy, um, sort of like, emotionally in turmoil person who's um out of hand competitive drive leads him to greatness 
You know, is it worth beating up on your teammates to win? You know, that's the whole argument. He's like, look, I was hard on my teammates because I was trying to toughen them up. It was this tough love thing. And my question is, what is what is a greater philosophy as a team player? Do your teammates thrive more when you feed them with positivity Mm. and you build this brotherhood of beast carnal, you know, like you could still have that intensity, but it's not coming from belittlement. It's like, for example, let's say you want your, your positional player to hit the shot at the end of the league or at the end of the night. Is he going to make it more if you belittle him or if you are giving him like, you got this, you know, he has the trust in himself. You're building that. So he's not feeling like he's not good enough for you, you know? So this is a question, you know, how do you run your organization when you're a leader and, and leadership practices? You know, I'm a true believer that, you know, one thing that I love about watching the dubs um, and Steve Kerr in particular is that he, to me, he seems like one of the guys who has some of the best sportsmanship. I think sportsmanship to me, I've had some really good mentors growing up who just really told me the worth of good sportsmanship. And I really believe it. Keeping your attitude so that you're not, like teams crumble because they get mad at each other. You know what I mean? And and uh, you watch it happen all the time. A team will crumble because they've been talking trash. Shout out the Houston Rockets. Shout out the Rockets <laughs> crumble fest, you know, 2000 era. Because, because the, you know, it's not as strong than the brotherhood who's going to be playing this even-keeled game and with the support of each other and the praise that people are out there busting, knowing how much work that your brother's put into it and just even on the pickup court how much better do you do when you find that squad out there everyone's picking teams and you don't get any of the guys with the stink vibe you get all the team players and then on the other side you got some hot shot guys who can hit the tray who can dribble drive but you got a squad who's playing good fundamental basketball Mm -hmm. and they cream them so what I was saying is that with the dubs is that what I loved was that Steve Kerr, someone who was there during the Jordan era, this time where we were exploring individual greatness and a person who could carry a team on his back. Steve Kerr's this ultimate positional player and he turns around and he coaches the Warriors in this way where everybody puts on the leadership hat and has a role and this multifunctional thing, you know, multiple all-stars um and just overall great uh you know i you don't see too many people you know um crumbling and and yeah i mean i think that if if you were going to ask me which championship squad was probably more fun to be on you know the the late 20 teens dubs or the mid 90s bulls I kind of feel like probably the dubs, you know, they seem to be having more fun at their games. And with Jordan, I think you see this like huge emotional ride that he was on where losses, he hated to lose. Oh, watching those clips. After even in lost. winning, there was a little bit of like mania, mania there. Yeah. You know? And so, whereas you look and watch like a dubs game and you just see how happy Steph looks, you know, when, when the sub, 10th man comes in and hits the three you look at the bench and everyone's like oh 
that's our boy you know yeah and how about how about like you know i think it's kind of historic like like the dubs came in and they it wasn't like oh starting five is the important guys like the whole thing like iguodala won mvp he's our sixth man right wasn't he sixth man Mm -hmm. so like like the value of the sixth man you know is is so cool to watch and i think that comes directly from kerr being an underdog sort of like overachiever he wasn't built to be a you know all-star and he wasn't self-proclaimed wasn't the best player but uh but he overachieved because he was he was driven and he was technically um he has one of the best shooting percentages so he was a smart player high basketball iq and he could uh you know he hit a high percentage of the smaller amount of shots that he took so understanding that Kerr comes in and he knows how important a sixth man is whereas you know you look at Jordan and and as you go down the rankings he talks more and more trash to the the lower level guys which I think probably backfired you know for him here and there you know probably his seventh eighth man whatever might miss that shot when he gets the chance because there's all this pressure that you know Anyway. Steve Kerr had a, just for the record, he had a point four seven nine, so almost a forty eight percent career shooting percentage, which is insane. You know, amazing. But um, yeah, you know, I think uh, just to touch on your point about the pickup, uh, you know, like you said, there's nothing that I'm in the same boat. You know, I love being on one of those teams where everyone's positive and gelling and playing good team ball. Shout out John Smithy, man. Yeah, and there's nothing more satisfying than playing a team that isn't when you are, and the other team's got the like, you know, backcourt coach. <laughs> oh yeah, and they're all they're all hating on each other now that they're not winning. Right. It's just you watch the crumble happen. One person tries to start shooting more threes, you yeah. know, and it all just crumbles. Totally, and and yeah, and definitely shout out to John Smithy, man, and Pirate <laughs> Camp, and all the yeah. educators. Oh, yeah throughout the years that have, you know, kind of pushed those values and, and, and all that. Um, but yeah, man, I'll just say that for those of you who haven't seen either of these things we've been talking about, what I would recommend if you really want to get the most um, out of both pieces of media, start watching The Last Dance until you get to the episode... Uh, where it's talking about him going to baseball. It's it's like maybe a third of the way. I think it's about a third of the way through the 10 part series. It might be a little bit more. Probably about half, right? Maybe about half. They're talking about it. And right there is where I think you should watch. Do you think they should watch it before that episode or after? Well, they're not going to know till they hit it. But, but when you watch the episode where he goes to play baseball, after you watch that episode, stop the tape go watch Space Jam, then continue on. I just think that that's kind of the optimal time if you want to get that like synergistic storyline that we were talking about. Um, but but Space Jam's definitely, you know, in my book will go time, go down as one of the all-time greats. Maybe the GOAT uh, <laughs> sports cartoon crossover movie. Uh, maybe the GOAT, you know, kids sports movie of all time. You know, like... I, I mean... It- I'm biased because I'm a '90s kid, but yeah. that that to me, I hold that up there. You know, that's uh, it. Just yeah, 
you know, some might say that uh, the Mighty Ducks would would be a, a worthy competitor, but to quote Bugs Bunny in Space Jam, what kind of Mickey Mouse organization names their team the Ducks? <laughs> so I think with that, we could leave it at that. And uh, I just want to say, Tones, uh, thanks so much for coming on, man, and uh, weaving your your wand of philosophical uh, ingenuity. And uh, really oh, appreciate getting the been a real, perspective. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, you know, and, you know, I've been a, a fan of the Bartcast, you know, for so long now, <laughs> you know, sort of from afar. And, you know, it's easy to question, oh, am I, am I uh, good enough to be on it? You know, because it's got that, that budding reputation. Well, well, you I know, know you have a lot of star power on here. Well, you know, we have a saying here on the bot on the Bartcast that's kind of our personal mantra. And that is good enough. It's not just good. It's, <laughs> it's good, good enough. enough. Quote John Gove. Laney College music department. Yeah, man, that philosophy got me through college. Because oh, yeah. uh, let's just say I was always good enough. But right. uh, I teetered on that edge. You know, shout out Jay Lehman. Right. Well, we, you know, one of the truths that I've, I have feel like has really come home to roost for me is that, you know, we're all exactly as good as we are. So, yeah. And, you know, and I, uh, and, uh, and I've come to peace over the years that I don't have to be like Mike. I don't have to be the best. I can be a Steve Kerr role player. You know, I don't have to carry the team. And I have that side of me that's got that drive like Mike that wants to be, you know, the head honcho, you know, top of the, you know, a number one guy but uh but some but i don't me personally my final bit of wisdom is i don't think it's worth it i think that for some people it's call it fate call it karma that's the role that they find themselves in jordan that was his karma and we we can celebrate that but you watch the turmoil from behind the scenes and you know uh it's a practice for me to sort of like relinquish that hyper competitive sort of toxic competitive thing and just learn how to play that John Smithyman game of, you know, um, of bigging up your brothers and cooperation and, uh, you know, just playing a, a, being a piece of the puzzle in the grand universal one love connection. Right on. Well, that's it. I think that's a good place to end it. Um, one love to you all, and uh, thanks, Tones, for coming on. This thanks great. for having me, brother. Go watch Space Jam. Eee. All right. Well, there we are. There you have it. Um, our little Michael Jordan Space Jam. Space Jam. Man, my enunciation is off today. But, uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Tried to break it down in the most Owen Brothers fashion. Um, and, uh, yeah, highly recommend you guys go check out that, uh, those, those episodes of the documentary and Space Jam. Um, you know, I don't know how many of you out there have had this experience, but I feel like there will be like movies or shows that show up on Netflix that I'm like, I like tag it in my mind. Like, all right, I'm not quite ready to watch it yet, but maybe in like a week or two, 
and I remember like I rented Space Jam a couple months ago because it wasn't on Netflix, and then and then it came on Netflix, and I was like, okay, I just watched it. I'm not going to watch it again. And then when we were preparing for this episode, me and my brother went to go sit down and watch it, and it had been on Netflix. And we go to look for it, and it's off now. So we had to buy it. We had to rent it again. And it almost seemed like there's some weird algorithm that's listening through my phone microphone that, like, knows when I want to watch something. And then it, like, pulls it off the subscriptions that I'm paying for. So I have to go back in and rent it. I don't know. I feel like there's some sort of conspiracy out there of content streamers to make me uh, have to continue to pay for stuff. Uh <laughs> But whatever, that's a first world problem, definitely. Um, yeah, um, pretty fun sitting with sitting, getting the Jones take, uh, and um, certainly gonna have him back on here uh, for some more conversations. He, you know, with me and my brother, when we sit down, um, we were talking about this after we did this episode. We're so used to talking about all these things because it's kind of like that sort of a conversation that we just had is kind of like what we do just naturally as when we hang out. And so I think that there's like this tendency almost to present it as if we're like on a broadcast rather than like I know that the standard podcast model that I usually go for is more of a conversational thing. So we I just noticed that the two of us we're kind of speaking as if we were behind the way that I think about it is like sitting side by side at the broadcaster table, as opposed to sitting across from each other. Um, we, whatever the verbal equivalent of that is, that's kind of what it felt like, but hopefully that wasn't, uh, hopefully you still got a taste of the, uh, organic, funky human aspect of it. That is, you know, what the flavor that we try to bring to you here on the Bartcast. Um, yeah, the Chone, great job, buddy. And, uh, really look forward to having him on the, in the future. Um, just a little preview of next week. Uh, I'm going to be having my friend Megan, Rachel McCullough on. She is an amazing chef and one of my favorite human beings and a total wordsmith. And we just are going to be just you know, getting into a more casual conversation, no, no clear objective other than just to bring some, some Meg's Donator vibes onto the Bartcast. Um, so be sure to look out for that. If you haven't already subscribed, highly recommend you do that. Then, then, uh, you'll get them automatically on your phone when I publish. Um, and yeah, and really, uh, you know, if you want to be a little interactive, we certainly, um, we certainly are open to getting people, you know, if you have any weirdo questions you want to throw my way that you'd like me to address on here, uh, or takes that you'd like to, that you have, or takes that you want me to have, you know, to take, you want to get our, my opinion or a guest's opinion. Um, yeah. Uh, the email is the Bartcast mailbox at gmail.com. The Bartcast mailbox at gmail.com. Um, Certainly open to hearing uh, from the from the people. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'll just say I'll end with this. You know, wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this, um, if you can this week, if you can find the time amidst your shelter in place, get outside, 
get under the sky and uh if you could uh get yourself in some water i really recommend taking a dip it's it's you know we're on those early days of summer and uh speaking from experience like getting into the water um has been one of the best things i've done this week so get yourself out there get out in some water practice safety but uh but immerse yourself and uh, i'll see you guys all here next time on the barcast 